Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, the new space epic from the Dark Knight director. Uh, Joining me in the studio is Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. Uh, You are a Slate contributor, editor, writer, and also a big Christopher Nolan fan, I gather. I am, which often... In, in turn just means a Christopher Nolan defender, mm-hmm. I feel like, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he occupies a strange place in terms of reputation of, of major directors right now in that I feel like everyone agrees that he's somehow important and respects him, and yet lots of people find that he's not to their personal taste. And I think in general that I would be one of those viewers. I think the things that you know people mock about Christopher Nolan movies are sometimes the things that make me inadvertently chuckle in his movies and did occasionally in Interstellar as well. But Interstellar is a big, complicated juicy example of a Chris Nolan movie to talk about because it did, unlike the Dark Knight movies, it's not an adaptation. It's an original idea created by him and his brother, Jonathan, who wrote the script. And, uh, and it goes out on a lot of strange intellectual and aesthetic limbs. So even though I didn't love it, I feel like it offers so much to talk about. And there are definitely things that I loved about it, but you in general were a fan. Yeah, I was a big fan of this movie. I agree. It's definitely a, a mixed bag. I suspect we'll agree about a lot of the things we didn't like about it. Dialogue has never been uh, Christopher Nolan or Jonathan no- Jonathan Nolan's uh, strength, really. And yet they have um, so much of it. They have a lot of it because there's a lot of like there's a lot of explaining the plot in all of these movies. Just a lot of exposition. Um, but yeah, mixed bag. But a lot of really awesome stuff in that bag that for me uh, just made it a pretty. I mean, I say awesome because I think that's kind of the word, like, awe. This is a movie that frequently succeeded in inspiring awe in me. Yeah, um, and, and that's an emotion that this movie explicitly strives for and in some ways is about, right? I mean, right. it's about yeah. the characters themselves experiencing awe and um, and communicating that awe to others. Yeah, and I think that gets the heart of, of why Christopher Nolan is viewed as important because he's one of the few people who can get a studio to write, you know, a $200 million check for him to tell an original picture that's, you know, not about some pre-existing superhero or something. Right. And what's quite unusual, I mean, in many ways, this film does resemble other movies that have been made even Mm -hmm. recently, science fiction epics. You know, it has some of the same themes of, you know, time travel and um, settling new worlds and things that we've seen in other sci-fi epics for the last generation. And yet there is something that feels fresh and new about it. I I can't quite put my finger on what that is, but I didn't sort of feel like same old, same old at many points in this movie at all. Yeah, there are definitely elements of, you know, I was reminded of Gravity at times. That's probably uh, the movie that ultimately it reminded me most of. I think it's aiming to do something like 2001, um, and it has that kind of experiential, like, ultimate trip feeling. And there are parts of this that just kind of feel like, oh, you know, everybody should be dropping acid for this movie the same way they did for 2001. Um, yeah, there's even a trippy going through a wormhole sequence. It doesn't exactly. last quite as long and isn't quite no. as overtly psychedelic as the one in 2001, but is clearly referencing it. Yeah, and ultimately, the reason I, I think was reminded more of Gravity is that Nolan is just more interested in basing everything as much as possible in reality and in telling like a very tangible story with clear rules. And uh, that's not something that 2001 does, or at least not recognizably. I still don't know what that movie's about. I've probably watched it you know, three or four times. Right. And in fact, the theoretical physicist Kip Thorne was a was an executive producer on this movie and was one of the big consultants on the time travel science and, you know, trying to figure out these speculative ideas that physicists talk about but haven't actually seen happen. It was sort of funny. I also saw the Stephen Hawking movie last week and Kip Thorne comes up in that too. He's mentioned at one point as one of the big rivals and com- not exactly rivals, but contemporaries of, of Stephen Hawking. So Kip Thorne is all over movie screens right now. Yeah. I, all of this theory that's a really a big part of the movie, you know, exactly 
how relativity works and what it's like to go through a wormhole and what's at the center of a black hole and all of this. Uh, it's kind of a lot of what's great and what's terrible to sort of steal uh, uh, from your headline, uh, from the headline of your review, Dana, about this movie. Um, and one reason I, it's one reason I'm excited to talk about this movie because there's a lot I think I understood, but I'm not totally sure. Um, and I think it'll be fun to go over. Yeah, some I've got stuff. some. I've got some straight up. I did not get this plot point questions yeah. for you. So, so let's do a general setup of of the scene. So we begin in the near future. We're not told significantly exactly when this is taking place or even where. Right? Do we get any kind of a place name at any point for where they live? I'm not sure we get a place. There are some references to time, and I. So I think it's been at least a century or something. Um, but it doesn't look that far in the future. This, this is one thing I thought that worked really well for the movie is that it's way in the future, I think. Um, and yet most of the technology is like pretty old fashioned and very much repurposed. And most of the time we're just, you know, on a cornfield that looks very recognizable um, from today. Right. So the vision of the dystopia that Matthew McConaughey who plays, the main character, and Cooper is his name, and mm-hmm. his kids inhabit is... Is it looks sort of like a, a late '90s universe, right? There's these sort of um, clunky laptops that don't quite look modern, but they work. There seems to be an internet. There are cars that drive. There's apparently some kind of functioning government because the kids go to school, and the world seems to be sort of holding itself together. And yet, there's this conceit that comes up only through little scraps of heard dialogue that it takes you a while to piece together that the world's food supply is dwindling really fast, and the soil has failed, and essentially the only crop that will grow anymore is corn. Which I thought was going to make the whole movie be some sort of like Michael Pollan-esque, like anti monoculture um, treatise, but it never did turn into that at all. In fact, this movie's environmentalism was kind of strange because it was, in theory, about an environmental crisis on the planet, but it didn't seem to be particularly concerned with the actualities of climate change. Yeah, a lot of that was a little hazy for me. I mean, his politics in general tend to be kind of like a Rorschach or something. Uh, And I thought this movie was a little bit like that, too, which I think is not a bad thing in the sense that, like, it's okay to have nuanced politics and not have every movie be propaganda. Um, but yeah, one thing about, so the government, for example, is greatly reduced and they've given up on NASA so much that they've NASA's gone underground. It, NASA's gone underground. There's even a, a maybe sort of Kubrick reference where they talk about how um, the textbooks now say that the moon landing was faked. Um, That's one of the most bizarre moments in the dystopia is, yeah. setup, that, that he goes to his kid's school to have a conference and his daughter has gotten in a fight. His daughter, who will become a very important character and will be played by Jessica Chastain when she grows up, has gotten into a fist fight with another kid because the kid claimed that the moon landing was faked, which is apparently the official doctrine of the country which makes it seem as if we've been taken over by the Soviets or something. But I I don't don't understand what politics are being imagined for this future. So I think it's an exaggerated version of today in which, you know, NASA is not doing spaceflight anymore. Um, And also just it conveys this general sense that this is a future where they've messed up so bad that they cannot even allow themselves to wonder anymore. There's a part later where Matthew McConaughey's McConaughey's character says... um, we used to look up at the stars and wonder, and, and no one does that anymore. We just look down at the dirt, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's this kind of idea that, that dreaming about space travel even is over. But yet Michael Caine, who's the head of underground NASA, has somehow managed to create this completely secret um, facility where a sophisticated space rocket has been built that's waiting to take off into outer space. Yeah, there's a lot of plot to explain here. I don't know how much of it we want to redo. <laughs> well, Michael okay. Caine's official role, I realized watching this movie, Michael Caine's official rule in Christopher Nolan movies is just explaining the plot. This is what right. he does in every movie. And for the prestige, he's like, here are the rules of magic tricks. Right. Pay attention. 
<laughs> and, he's you know, got the voice and the presence he's for a it. professor in both this and inception where, in which he explains dreams um anyway so yeah nasa's underground they have a secret plan it has a plan a and a plan b plan a is to go find another planet and then bring all of earth to it right find a habitable planet somewhere outside our solar system but this requires solving the gravity equation, which I don't really know what it is. But or solving it's some, gravity is how they kept on putting yeah. it throughout the movie. Like, if I could just solve gravity, and I just love the idea that gravity is a problem. Like, if I could stop sticking to the ground, everything would be great. This is definitely one of those moments that I think a lot of people are going to be giggling in a lot of theaters. And I was a little tempted when they were talking about solving gravity. Uh, and plan B is basically to colonize a new planet. Um, so they haven't solved well, but plan, gravity. So plan B would leave all the yes. other residents of Earth to die. So the important right. difference between plan A and plan B, as outlined by Michael Caine to Matthew McConaughey, who he's trying to get to pilot this spaceship mission, is that either we're going to find a colony really fast <laughs> before too many years pass on Earth that the current population has all died out, and then bring everyone there. Or plan B, we just won't bring everyone there, and whatever few colonists wind up on a habitable planet will restart humanity. Obviously, Matthew McConaughey, as the loving father, single father of two small children, has a big interest in plan A working out and not plan B. Yeah, and I, I don't know if we want to skip ahead to spoiling uh, a little bit. I think that this is actually one of the most important parts of the movie and maybe one of the easiest uh, to forget um, in the sense that we we later find, find out that this is all a lie that Michael Caine has told, basically just to convince Christopher, I'm sorry, to convince um, the Cooper character, Matthew McConaughey's character, um, to head off into space and to try, to try to save the planet when in actuality he's not trying to save the planet at all. And uh, the reason this is most interesting to me is that um, to me, this is the like number one theme of Christopher Nolan's movies. So yes, they're about puzzles. Yes, they're about dead wives. Not my favorite part of Christopher Nolan's movies is the dead wives thing. But you mean every single one is a dead wife? Every, I never thought much of that. All you're of them. right. Oh he, my god, you're it's right. always like a brooding Inception, man Memento? who wants to get back to his kids or his wife or revenge her or something. Um, did I say revenge? Avenge her. Um, but. The more interesting theme to me and and what's pretty much always the crux of his movies is that it's about people who tell themselves lies in order to convince themselves that they're the hero and that life is worth living. And uh, that happens again in this movie. And it's maybe a little different in that usually the world in Christopher Nolan's movies is horrible, but at least in this one there is this concept of they, there's something, some benevolent force out there. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a presence of, of kind of the supernatural, although we can talk about whether it turns out to actually be posited as the supernatural or not. So that's yeah. something else that makes this movie be in touch with 2001 A Space Odyssey and other works like Tarkovsky, works of speculative mm-hmm. science fiction that have some sort of broader, you know, they're not just looking at the hit, the future of technology and humanity. They're kind of looking at bigger, universal, possibly theological questions. So this is a really vast, sprawling epic that tells at least two interweaving over the, the course of a generation or more stories at once. Um, do you want to break down what those two threads are? Sure. So there's uh, the one thread is back on Earth. Um, it mainly follows a character played by Jessica Ch- Chastain who plays... Um, Murph Cooper. Murph Cooper. So Cooper's daughter, the our hero's daughter, um, who becomes a... Uh, a very accomplished, uh, brilliant scientist, and eventually ends up trying to solve this equation, even though Mac, you know Michael Caine's been lying about whether it's possible. Um, 
And his older son, we should say, his older child, a son, right. is played by Casey Affleck as an adult and is sort of posited as, like, the the one who's not like Matthew McConaughey, right? He's a farmer. He's going to stay on the farm and keep on trying to grow corn as long as you can and, you know, not reach for the stars the way the Jessica right. Chastain sister is doing. Right. And and so the second and kind of more obvious plot thread is Matthew McConaughey traveling throughout the uh, not just galaxy, but I guess the whole universe or through another galaxy um, trying to find a planet for them. Right. So and, there's three planets that have been marked out in this other right. galaxy as possibly habitable. And then according to Michael Caine, there's a disturbance in space-time near Saturn. And if you get there at the right time and place, you can zoom through, as Matthew McConaughey and his crew do, and get to this other galaxy where they might be able to find habitable planets. Right. Yeah. There's a wormhole place there by they. Uh, so there's a pretty spectacular sequence, I thought, when they go through the wormhole, which was one of those kind of truly awe-inspiring moments for me. Like you said, it's very much like 2001, but I found myself, I actually like uttered the phrase, oh my God, at some point. Um, it's full of stars. Yeah, exactly. So it's a very small crew that's going to possibly colonize and start the new world. It's Anne Hathaway, who's kind of the planetary scientist expert, I guess. She's the one who knows right. the most about the Brand. planets. Then there's Wes Bentley as the co-pilot, a very small part. Since it's a spoiler, we can say he's pretty much a red shirt from the yeah. original Star Trek, right? He's kind of there to be cannon fodder fairly early on. And right. uh, and David Gyasi, who plays, I think, a really interesting and underdeveloped character, who's the astrophysicist on board, uh, yeah. who at one point, and again, this is hopping around spoiling here and there, but the movie hops through time, so I will too. But I really loved that moment when the two of them go down to one of the planets, have what seems to them like an afternoon's worth of mm-hmm. experiences, very scary ones that could potentially have been deadly. But still, it's sort of like they accomplish something on the planet. They get away, and they come back up into the David Gyasi character. It's age twenty three years. Yeah, and uh, and that alone, just even him saying those words, you know, that gives gives you this kind of chill because time and the passage of time and the differential passing of, of time because of relativity, you know, in different parts of space, is is one of the main themes of this movie and something it does really chillingly well. I think. Yeah, it's exactly how you feel coming out of this movie. Three hours have passed, and yet you feel as if it seems like so years. much more. Um, yeah, so that, so that sequence takes place on this planet that has a, this humongous wave that's so big they think it's a mountain. I found that sequence to be very successful. It's, I think it's interesting to me that uh, I always want to press through to the next set piece, and you're always like, but what about the characters? <laughs> and it's like, forget the characters. This is a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> yeah, I think you're kind of right in some it ways. This is both. a movie more about, about the spectacle. But it's, I think it spends a lot of time on character, too. I mean, there's a good 20 minutes on Earth yeah. before the spaceship mission even starts. And I had some sense of impatience, like, why is the daughter's bookshelf so important? There's right. all this time spent with he and his daughter decoding these signals that they're reading from books that are falling off the bookshelf. You have no idea what's going on, essentially, except that something that they think is supernatural is sending them coded messages, and they think that this has something to do with the space journey. Yeah, I'm curious what you thought about that, because for me, you know, he's trying to do both the set pieces and have these characters at the same time that you care about, and for me, he just barely did enough that I found myself caring about the characters. So... So during that sequence when they come back after the three hours on this planet and 23 Earth years have passed, um, there's the sequence where he has to watch a video of the 23 years worth of video messages that his children have recorded. And I cared enough about those characters and their relationships at that point that I was legitimately uh, quite moved. Uh, but I suspect that a lot of people maybe weren't. I don't, I don't know if there was enough of that for you. 
You know, I think the acting was good enough that, that there was. Yeah. I mean, there's something strange going on with the acting in this movie where there are lots of individual good performances, but it never felt like it coalesced into any kind of ensemble for me. I kept on thinking, there's Jessica Chastain. There's Matt Damon, who does a semi-surprise appearance, as we'll get to him, as one of the, the planetary colonizers. And it always sort of felt like it was an actor who was talented doing something impressive rather than a, a, a world, a textured world being created of fictional beings. Yeah, I, su- I suspect part of that is probably that characters in Nolan movies, they're so um, obsessed, you know, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan are so obsessed with characters representing ideas that I think they sometimes kind of lose sight of having them be interesting people with interesting quirks who are relatable and so on. So, so yeah, we could skip ahead. The next planet they go to is this ice planet, um, which is inhabited by Dr. Man, who is it, Matt Damon. And one of kind of the biggest surprises of this movie, they they did a good job of keeping Matt Damon out of the marketing. So when he shows up, it's, you know, kind of a, whoa, didn't, you know, didn't realize he was in this. Um, and he... Earlier, we were told he represents the best of man because he's like the most brilliant scientist on Earth. Dr. Man. Dr. Man. Yeah. Subtle. Yeah. And uh, and then I think it kind of turns out he represents sort of what's worth wor- – he represents the worst of man. He doesn't have a family, so he just kind of cares about himself and starts this fight with um, – the Cooper Matthew McConaughey character. I don't quite understand in that scene what the the Doctor Man's goals would be. Why would he want to? He wants he wants to be saved, right? Essentially, he pretends that he's on a habitable planet so that they'll come and get him because he's just lonely and cowardly and doesn't want to live and die alone on this planet. It doesn't even seem that cowardly to me. I can understand, you know, going to to any length to be rescued. But then, why does he sort of try to sabotage their mission and try to kill Matthew McConaughey? I mean, that's the person who's going to get him out and get him back. It seems like he would want to keep the crew intact until they're all on board. I guess the idea is just that he's gone crazy, right? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. It's definitely that he wants to get back, and I liked the part about. Um, there's a part where he says, you know, I stayed there two years knowing I could flick a button and then I would be saved and I resisted it for two whole years and then in one moment of weakness or something. Um, I found that uh, interesting and it made him kind of more than a comic book villain. But I'm not, maybe there wasn't enough room on the spaceship. I don't know. Yeah, it's not, his his goals are never quite clear. The moment when he bites it. Maybe he just wants to get back to Earth. Sorry, I, I interrupted. Is that what it is? I guess so, but then why would you try to murder the person who can captain the ship that would get you back to Earth? I think maybe his, like, selfish part. Like, he's re- he's going to be revealed as selfish when they actually look at what this planet is like. And I think maybe he wants to use, like, their remaining fuel to get back to Earth. Right. There's so much plot in this movie that I suspect this is explained, and it was just one of the, like, 800 plot points. That, right. Well, he's trying, I don't know. he's trying to take over the spaceship in some way that they say he's not technically able to do. And then this, I did think, was actually a funny and sort of horrifying moment when in the, he's about to make his villain speech, basically. Matthew, um, Matt Damon is about to make his villain speech, essentially. He's standing in the kind of lock section of the spaceship trying to take over. I mean, I, I have no idea exactly what he's trying to do, but somehow take over the spaceship. And just as he's about to, to make a speech, I think he's actually mid-sentence, the uh, the entire lock blows open and he gets blown out into space forever yeah. and dies. And that was that was kind of a fitting and sort of horrifying and satisfying end for that character. Yeah, kind of a good applause moment. So what about what happens next? What about, well, let's get to the denouement part where We've now, I mean, we're now two hours into the movie. We still have almost another hour to go. This right. is very cl- 10 minutes short of being a three-hour movie. And then there's about five endings in a row that happen. I would say that the weakest part of this movie is the last hour, 45 minutes, um, when there are just so many plot threads that have to be 
figured out. We've got to get Matthew McConaughey back to Earth. He has to reconcile or not with his children who may or may not still be alive. And we have to figure out the future of the planet. And all of that stuff kind of happens in these strange hiccups for the last 45 minutes of the movie. Let's let's get to the most woo-woo crazy scene of all, which I don't know how you would even describe it. But it's his second trip through the wormhole, right? Trying to Wait, get back so, to Earth. So this time, uh, it's not technically a wormhole because he goes th- into a black hole, I guess. So they manage to escape the planet and he jettisons himself because it's the only way that the ship is going to keep going to kind of save Anne Hathaway's character who's going to go to this new planet and try to save the Earth. And me- in the meantime, he's going into this black hole. And um, Which after- is separate from the wormhole? I guess I'm just not big so on my space geography. The wormhole is outside Saturn. It was placed there by they. And then there's this... We're now in a new galaxy... That has this black hole in it. Um, and crucially, there's this idea that the answer to the gravity equation is in this black box inside of this black hole. I'm using black box there figuratively. Um, and so I don't know if for sure Matthew McConaughey's character knows that or not, but he goes into this black hole. And so, yeah, there's a very, again, I thought quite cool sequence where he's falling into it and we don't really know what's going to happen. And it's, again, kind of like the to Jupiter and beyond sequence from the end of 2001. But then it becomes kind of then both it becomes more like the concrete Alice in Wonderland and more almost. trippy. Right, because he actually does end up somewhere. You know, there's this funny moment where, to me, it reminded me of Alice in Wonderland and falling through the hole. There's this moment yeah. where his fall through the sheer emptiness and blackness of the black hole becomes him falling down what looks almost like a, a row of, like, library shelves, right? right? That's literally, I mean, it's not a library, but it's li- it, it, we find out it's literally bookshelves. And so what he's done is, and I guess this is what the movie's trying to get across, that either he or his some part of his mind, and then this is when I really start to need to take it apart with someone, either him or some projection of the future or past him is kind of floating in this space that's made of a bunch of replicated library shelves or bookshelves. Books, yeah. And and we're back at that moment, at the, the key moment that was so important at the beginning of books falling off the daughter's bookshelf and making these patterns in the dust that the two of them try to interpret as kind of symbolic runes or something. And so I guess what's happening here is that we now discover that it was Matthew McConaughey or some future version of him that was making the dust book runes all along. Yes. Right? That is correct. Yeah. I, I believe at least if we're going to take his character for his word and, and what he realizes or thinks he realizes about this place, and I think we are supposed to take him for his word, that what this place is that he's fallen into is uh, has is a physical place, not in his mind, I don't think, that has been built by these five-dimensional beings. I'm not 100% clear on what the fourth dimension is. I guess the fourth dimension is time, and then they're outside of time. So they're kind of like the Trafalmadorians from Slaughterhouse-Five. And but they're future humans, in my understanding, right? These five-dimensional beings are, are us in the future. Yeah, and I thought, man, the, there are so many movies that get to this exact point. I think a lot of them are modeling themselves on 2001. The end of 2001 is not my favorite part. It is way more woo-woo than this is, at least in the sense that you have no idea what's actually happening. You know, he sees a future version of himself and so on. Um, In this movie, yeah, they kind of figure out a way where there's sort of aliens or sort of a god, which is how a lot of these movies end. Like Mission to Mars ends with these, like, god aliens, the Brian De Palma space movie that's kind of like this. But in this, it's somewhat more 
down to earth in a way because they're extremely transcendent future versions of humans. Right. Yeah. Thinks. I thought it was more. I think. I think it has more to do with um, the future communicating with the past. In fact, somebody says I forget. I forget whose voice this happens in, but somebody says three-dimensional model of five-dimensional space has been built so that you, poor right. human, Matthew McConaughey, can understand it and visualize it. So that's this weird, you know, library stack that he's floating around in. And then there's, there's I actually found this scene kind of strangely moving. I mean, moving in part just because of its cinematic um, yeah. uh, audacity, you know, that Christopher Nolan dared to go there. He wasn't just imagining cool outer space-looking stuff, but, you know, sort of like a model of a different reality, which is, which is a really cool thing to try to do. But I also like just the simplicity of the storytelling at this point, because when Matthew McConaughey is sort of trapped behind this virtual bookshelf, seeing his daughter once again a child on the other side and realizing, oh, it was it's me who has to communicate to her, right? Then it becomes like a ghost story. It really, to yeah. me, reminded me of just an old classic ghost story where, you know, ghosts can make things move, but they can't actually touch matter, you know, and that they have a limited set of powers with which to communicate these very important things to the living. And that side of it just seemed kind of beautiful to me. So I liked, yeah. I liked the floating bookshelf bit, which you could definitely argue is the most woo-woo and insane part of the entire movie. It's definitely going to lose a lot of people. I, it just kind of barely g- kept me with it. But I think that the movie should have ended much sooner after that because then there's like a lot. He, he manages to, you know, shove the books out of the bookshelf in the proper runic order where she can read the message. And the message, which I don't quite know what this means in, in terms of the, you know, the movie's um, teleology, is stay. The message is that he's trying to get himself to not go on the mission in the first place, in which case, presumably, everyone well, on Earth would have died. So, yeah, so there's, there's two messages he sends back. He's, you, they, they've said earlier in the movie that the one thing that can... I have no idea whether this is actual, you know, complies with actual theoretical physics or not. But the idea is that the only thing that can travel through time is gravity. And, and so love. he's... <laughs> and love, right, which is not one of the movie's best lines, but I think it's explained pretty well in that um, there's – I was constantly afraid this movie was going to go into mysticism and the supernatural. And it, it doesn't, as I understand it, because A, he uses gravity, the one thing that can travel through time, and B, the reason he's able to connect with his daughter is basically just because they love each other and, and know each other. There's not like the force – um, that creates a myth- mystical connection between them. It's just the connection that any father and daughter have. Right, which, which is like that ghostliness of that scene that makes it effective, I think. Right. Yeah, completely agree about that. So, yeah, the first message is stay because he's just feeling very emotional and he's feeling trapped and he hasn't figured out his situation yet. So he just wants to kind of reverse everything we've seen over the last few hours. But then he realizes the situation and then he he's with Tars, who we've not even talked about yet and is the best... Character yeah, right. Tars in this being movie. the HAL of this movie, right? The HAL yeah. 9000 of this movie, the conscious computer. And Tars figures out, uh, using the data inside the black hole, how to solve the gravity equation. And that's what he sends back that um, enables. Jessica Chastain to then do that and save humanity. Right. So part of the dust book message, besides I wish I had never gone on this trip to begin with, is here's the solution to gravity, which in a really ridiculous and extremely underdeveloped story about Jessica Chastain becoming a great physicist, right? We never see her like studying or, you know, whatever, teaching. But suddenly we see her standing at a blackboard feverishly writing out the solution to the gravity equation, which is going to make her essentially the world's savior. Here we get a little bit back to the environmental question, because it seems like what happens after Jessica Chastain writes down the message from the beyond and becomes the world savior is that we then abandon the earth, right? I mean, the next time we see her, she's on this kind of 
spaceship. Yeah, space like a space station mm-hmm. orbiting the Earth, and there is sort I of. I think a maybe sense it's orbiting Saturn. I don't. It's not important. Anyway, we've given up on our planet. You know, which yeah. is that could be part of this movie's philosophy, but it, I think it needs to be. It would need to be treated a little bit more. It just seemed like there needed to be a little bit of an elegy for the Earth or the story of how we left it, or even just logistically, like how it all got done. You know, suddenly yeah. there's this cut to this kind of utopic future where Jessica Chastain's space station, named after her character, the Cooper Space Station, which McConaughey initially thinks is named after him, but it's named after his daughter, is this utopic place with, you know, artificial sunlight and crops growing. And that, to suddenly, to me, fast forward to this weird utopia that's just happened and not have any sense of of how or why that happened. It just seems like the movie's giving up on some potentially really interesting ideas. Yeah, I I think I had that feeling kind of subconsciously a little bit. The end is kind of deflating. It's a little... I I think it worked better for me than for you, but um, yeah, there, there there are parts that feel very much elided, and I, this I think is, this is the experience with a lot of his movies, where you know, for example, the first time you watch Memento, you're kind of just piecing together the basic facts of what happened. Maybe the first couple times, um, but I also think if you rewatch that movie, you can piece together all of those things, and then all of a sudden it becomes like a pretty moving movie about this guy who lost his wife and then has to lie to himself in order to, uh, you know, make his life, you know, give it his life some meaning and and give him a reason to li- himself a reason to live. Um, so yeah, the first time I watched Memento, I think I wasn't really sure whether there there was a core to it, and I and I found that over time, and I think maybe that would happen with this. Like for, I think that the reason that there's uh, not so much of an elegy for Earth is because I think most of Earth has already died out at this point. We know there's not v- very many people left, even when Matthew McConaughey's character leaves. And this is uh, something like 60 or 70 years into the future. And actually, everybody was supposed to die off. We know that. So, yeah, thousands, uh, probably millions of people die. And we don't see that. And right. maybe that's... Nor do we hear any history of it. You know, I mean, there's, and there's something very emotionally unsatisfying as well to me about the final encounter of Matthew McConaughey and his daughter, maybe in part because this is always such a jolt when this happens in movies. Suddenly she's played by another person. She's right. an old woman, right? He's still, he's, he's still around the same age as when he left, and she's suddenly played by Ellen Burstyn. And, uh, and so without getting any sort of chance to get used to the fact that Ellen Burstyn is Jessica Chastain and that that character is aged... We get this deathbed scene where she gets to see her father on her deathbed. And there were just so many things about that scene that were so kind of emotionally clueless that I felt like somebody needed to sit down with Christopher and Jonathan Nolan and talk to them about the basic sort of structure of human relationships. Like the idea that you would see your long lost daughter on her deathbed and she's surrounded by all this family that are presumably, you know, his grandchildren and great nephews and great nieces. We don't know what happened to Casey Affleck. I guess his lifespan just ended and he died. But he sort of communicates with her about having gotten back and that she always knew he would come back. And then she says, oh, no, you go save Anne Hathaway. I'm good. I'm good. I'll just die here with all these people that are your relatives that I'm not introducing you to. There was something about that scene that was so weird and, and wrong. And I just wish that the movie had ended like 20 minutes earlier so we didn't have to see it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, I will say I liked that she I, I liked that she was played by a different actress because the alternative, I mean, those scenes are pretty much always awkward. Anytime you have a character that's suddenly 70 years older but i do prefer using another actress 
to layers and layers of age makeup, which inhibits the acting and usually just looks silly. Yeah, age makeup, you know, age makeup is not really a solution. But my thing about when the actor is replaced by another actor, I was thinking about this a lot after Boyhood came out, actually, because mm-hmm. obviously there is a place where you don't have to replace. The actor is actually aging. But I was just thinking about that that moment always jolts me, and I don't like when movies take you too quickly to an emotional, intense scene with a new actor playing a character you haven't seen before. And a great movie that does this, I think, to its detriment is There Will Be Blood. You know, the, mm-hmm. the actor who plays the deaf son essentially it gets one scene, right, the, who plays the deaf son as a grown-up. He gets one scene, and it's an incredibly intense scene. It's the scene in which the father and son say goodbye forever. And, and it seemed to me that that structurally was just somehow off, that there needed to be a little bit more time to get used to that actor and accept that he was the son. My one point, I, <laughs> since I'm the Christopher Nolan defender here, I will say that that scene, my one defense would be, I, I largely agree with that, but the scene is at least, it's about that weirdness. It's about precisely the weirdness you're talking about. Uh, he hasn't seen her forever, for, you know, decades either. So we're having the same experience that he's having. And it and it probably feels a little weird for him too, and he doesn't know those relatives. I do think you're, you're right that uh, he probably still would care more about his grandkids than the person he just met, you know, a few hours ago. (laughs) But she literally sends him out of the death bedroom. I I can just imagine him saying, like, no, no, I'm good. I'll stay the extra 15 minutes till you die and then, you know, meet my grandchildren. But he doesn't. He does head off to to save Anne Hathaway from her planet. And that's all very telegraphically referred to, right? We get some Mm -hmm. sense that she's on that planet, that the man that she was in love with on that planet, who was sort of the, the colonizer, the equivalent of Matt Damon on that planet, has died, whether since she got there or before, we don't know. But she is just all alone floating on a rock somewhere in space. So maybe it is good that Matthew McConaughey bolted away from the deathbed to go save her. Yeah, I think the only reason I kind of related with it is that they've just gone through this incredibly, you know, traumatizing, crazy experience, as we all have watching this movie. And it feels like it's probably hard, going to be hard for Matthew McConaughey's grandkids to relate to him. Uh, And yet, like, he and um, the Anne Hathaway character have a lot in common. And so maybe they'll kind of connect there. But we haven't really seen a lot of budding romance or anything between them. All right. So so at the end of all this, when you come out of Interstellar, do you feel like that you've had an experience you want other people to go and have? I'm not sure that I do. I felt dazzled and awed and always interested to see what Christopher Nolan would do next. But this movie never kind of caught fire for me emotionally. And I think if you're somebody who's not particularly drawn to gigantic metaphysical space epics, it's not necessarily something that would win you over. Yeah, I, I, I basically agree with that. I think that, um, you know, millions and millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people really do like that kind of movie, and I would recommend it to all of them. But if you've gone, like, if you didn't like Inception, you're probably not going to like this. I actually like this quite a bit better than Inception, but that might possibly be because I just like Matthew McConaughey better than Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh-huh. And, and I don't know, that basic story of Inception was one of those stories that thinks it's smarter than it is to me, it was one of those stories that sort of thought it was pulling out rugs from under you in this clever way and actually just sort of plotted along for me. I like this better. All right. Well, Forrest, thank you for coming in and at least trying to win me over to the Nolan side, the Dark Knight side. I, I didn't succeed. Uh, I'll put it this way. I will always be excited to see a new Chris Nolan movie. And yeah. even if I were not a film critic who you know, was writing on it because it was a new Chris Nolan movie, I would always be interested to see what he would do next. I think he's kind of a visionary. He's, uh, he's a visionary with maybe not the most sophisticated intellectual apparatus behind his visual one, but he still is doing something that nobody else quite knows how to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited for what's next. All right, well, come back and spoil it with me then. Thanks.
Our producer is Chris Wade. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.